Welcome to The Rad Stuff, I'm Sheena and today we're talking to R.E. Bradshaw. She talks about characterization and writing thrillers. Stay tuned for this and more. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it. Hi, I'm Ari Bradshaw. I'm an author of many different kinds of books. I've written some romances, I've written some mysteries, and I'm most known for my thriller series, which is Rainy Bell Thriller Series. Uh, She's a former behavioral analyst for the FBI, and she's now retired, married, and raising triplets and solving crimes. So that's kind of what I do. Uh, So I have many different characters running around in my head all the time. And today, Sheena's asked me to talk about characterization. I have plenty of those people to talk about. Fantastic. So let's start with what is characterization? I have a degree in English. There's the literary version of characterization where you have the main character and any character, actually. An author will give you a direct characterization. That's something the author says about the character. It's what the author wants you to know about the character. And so they tell you directly This is important. This is what I know. Some indirect characterization are how does the character speak? What kinds of language do they use? What do they say? That's very important. What do they say about others? What what does that say about themselves? Private thoughts and feelings that are revealed by the author. You get that kind of characterization. You get to know more about them. How does a character interact with the other people in the book and what do they think? How does this character make other people feel? How does the character feel about other people? These are important parts of characterization. Behavior, how does the character behave in certain situations? That tells you a lot about a person, tells you a lot about a character in a book as well. Last but not least, an author will sometimes tell you how a character looks. If it's really important for the story, for for the author to let you know how the character looks, that, that I agree with, but there's also a school of thought that you give as little uh, information about what the character looks like. He may say tall, thin, dark hair, blue eyes, and that be it, and let the imagination of the reader go forward with that. Some people give very detailed information about what a character looks like. I try not to do that unless it's important that the reader see what I see as part of the character's completeness in a book. There's a reason Rainy Bell is tall, and muscular. She works out, she runs. It's important for her to be healthy and strong. So it was important for me to tell the reader that this is what she does and this is how she gets that way. I never make it easy for somebody to be tall and thin and athletic. They they have to work at it and they talk about it. So. Oh, good for you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here's the thing about characterization. It's so much information. So how do you kind of keep it all together? How do you know what's important to add into the novel and what's not important to add into the novel? With the main characters, what is important are only those things that make it easier for the reader to understand where my character is coming from. What drives this character? What is the motivation for this character? The Hemingway iceberg theory is kind of how I look at uh, my, my characters. I know everything there is to know about the character. I come from a theater background. And what directors and what my mentors taught us in theater about character was to dig through that script and find everything you can that the author has given you. And then you have to make up the rest because it's not in the script. In a play, there is nothing in a play that isn't important. Every word, every movement, every inflection in in a character's voice is important. There is no time for extraneous things in a play. That's the way I look at novel writing. There is no place 
for an extraneous tidbit about a character. I may know things that Rainy Bell did as a teenager that reflect nothing on uh, what's happening in the book. So I keep that to myself. But knowing that is important. Like Hemingway said, you only know uh, uh, an eighth of what is sticking above the surface and the rest of the iceberg is below. It doesn't, you don't put details into a story that don't further the story, but you need to know those details because later on it may mean something. The more you know about a character, the better your characterization is going to be in the book, whether you put those details in there or not. All right, so why is it important for authors to know about characterization? Without a good, strong character in a book, nobody's going to care. The person who's reading the book has to care. And it's not always, I care about this person, I want them to be happy. It could be, I care that this person has done something terribly evil and I want them to suffer for it. It depends on what the character's job is in the book. But I need you as a reader to care whether or not the bad guy gets caught. I need you to care whether or not the innocent victim is rescued. And if you don't know anything about that victim, you're not going to care as much. So everybody in a book is important. For me, there's a rule that we had in the theater as well. Konstantin Stanislavski wrote the Bible on modern acting. Uh, he was a Russian director, a writer, and an actor. And he was one of the first to talk about realism in the theater. And I write a lot of realism into my books. I don't write fantasy, so everything I write has to be within the realm of reality. Konstantin Stanislavski said, there are no small parts, only small actors. And I think that holds very true for the people in the novel. For example, I have a woman in Cold and Rainy, which is uh, book four of the Rainy Bell thriller series, she is in a diner with Rainey and Rainey's father and uh, an acquaintance of Rainey's father. And you meet this woman and I give you enough detail about her that you understand that she's not a nice person. She's mean to her daughter. And she only says one thing to her daughter. You know, you finally drug up in here. That's it. But it's just her attitude towards her. And then the attitude she shows towards her other customers and towards the other young men who are her daughter's age when they come in, you find out a lot about her and who she is in just a few statements that she makes and just how she treats different people in the room. And she's not important in the scheme of things in the whole book, but later on something that she did, knowing those things that she did in the beginning of the book makes sense in the end of the book and give you more detail about this daughter that later on has something to do in the book. It was important that people understood exactly who this woman was, who is Doris in the diner, and she's, uh, it's like three pages, and that's it. That's all she appears in the book, but she's a very important character. And what I said about her and what other people say about her is really important, giving her a, a, a rounded personality. So that later on, when you meet the daughter as a grown woman, you understand why the daughter is the way she is because of that three pages you read, you know, uh, 200 pages before that. What's interesting about what you're saying, you, you spoke about bad guys and, and getting the reader to actually care. And the first thing that sort of popped into my head was in Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter's character, he's a really bad guy, but you actually oh, want man. him to escape and you want him to get one over on the nasty FBI guy. Right. 
Right. Uh, Hannibal is a, a brilliant character. Thomas Harris did a great job with him, making you like him, making you happy that he escaped in the end, and making you you almost get a sort of sadistic uh, laugh there at the end when he's he's off to have dinner with the uh, the psychiatrist that was running the hospital that he was in, the criminal hospital he was in. You're almost cheering for him to get even with the bad guy, although Hannibal is is horrible. He's horrifying, and the things he did... Uh, and the characters that he is based on are some of the most prolific and horrifying serial killers we've ever experienced in North America. Thomas Harris did a great job of making you really like Hannibal. You wanted to be a friend of his, but uh, gosh, he's such a horrible person. But then he shows you exactly who he is, and we still cheer for him. When he cuts up all the guys, uh, the guards that were guarding him, uh, and then later on you're still cheering for him, even though you know he did those horrible things. That's a, a fantastic book. But that's really great characterization because that's also making us feel things we didn't expect to feel with the character. Right, right. And he doesn't even go at you. Uh, he's a perfect example of the iceberg theory. There are a lot of things you don't know about Hannibal Lecter. You don't know about his childhood. You do if you read the whole series. You learn more and more about who Hannibal Lecter is. But in that book, in that movie, you don't find out very much about who Hannibal Lecter is, what made him the person he is, and why he turned into Hannibal the Cannibal. When I'm writing, I do the same thing Thomas Harris did. I think most of us do. It's not a big secret. We pull from reality. I'll take two or three serial killers, read about them, find out everything there is to know about them, what their profiles are, and then I create a single character out of those three. There are several reasons for that. One is I, I never want to take advantage of the victims of any particular crime. So if I was too truthful, I'd drag that victim back into a world. I really don't want to do that, don't want to do that to their families. So I try to, you know, there's enough fiction in it so you can't really recognize them. But the, all the characters are based on real events, real activities, real things that people did. And when you start studying these guys, you start wondering, Ted Bundy's a, a, a prime example. There are still a lot of women who are just fascinated by Ted Bundy, and men too, on a romantic basis, even knowing what he did and the crimes that he committed, and then you start to read about his childhood and, and the things that he went through, and you understand that we create as many of these creatures as are born by the actions of others and what they have to go through. So you start to feel a little empathy. And I have to be very careful to walk that line when I'm writing a book. I don't want you to like my bad guy too much, but I need you to like him enough to care. That's interesting. Do you have any kind of uh, background in law or...? No. I left high school to be a State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, I looked into that or being in the FBI. When I left high school, I got to school and fell in love with the drama department. And much to my mother's chagrin, gave up the law degree and went into theater, which... <laughs> really bothered my parents a lot. So that's the closest brush I've had with the legal profession. I do run my law by uh, a judge, and she's so good, she's a judge in Kansas, but most of my books are written in North Carolina. So she double checks with colleagues in North Carolina and double checks her law books to make sure that the laws that I'm talking about are real in North Carolina, not based on something that happens here in Oklahoma, because I live in Oklahoma now, or Kansas. 
So uh, I take advantage of all the people I know that are in law enforcement, people who are police officers, uh, people who have worked for the FBI, people who work for NCIS. She was fantastic, fun, fun person to talk to. So I, I've, I've made it my business to get into their business, to find out everything there is to know about these characters and how they should behave. And sometimes, you know, what, what we see on television, what we read in books is so fictionalized. Normally, a behavioral analyst sits at a desk most of the time and is reading. They're not really involved in going out and kicking in doors like they are on Criminal Minds. I keep reiterating that in the books, trying to make people understand that that's not what really happens. But I do run everything that I talk about law-wise by someone who actually does that for a living. So uh, I want to make sure it's right. Uh, that's important to me, that the research is right and that the FBI agents behave as real FBI agents do and that behavioral analysts behave the way they should and that lawyers behave the way, the way they should, whether they're good, bad, good or bad lawyers. Uh, either way, there is a truthfulness that uh, underlies everything, and I, I, want it, I want it to be there. One of the things I always tell people about truth, this is the thing. I'm from North Carolina. Nicholas Sparks writes all of his romances about North Carolina pretty much. And I used to read them. And then one day I was reading a Nicholas Sparks book and he said something about North Carolina that was absolutely not true. It, 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 it was not even remotely true. I closed the book and I've never picked up another one. It bothered me that much as a reader. I don't want a reader to ever have that experience with me. If I tell you it takes 45 minutes to get from Rodanthe to the ferry on the other end of Hatteras Island, I need that to be true. I think that also goes very much into characterization, though, because you're doing all this talking to all these these experts, these people who are actually in the field, and so you're bound to pick up mannerisms, the way they speak, and the way they would behave in certain situations, and then add that to the book. Right. Uh, when I met the, the NCIS officer, it was, or agent, it was uh, one of those things where I would have never known she was uh, an NCIS, an active NCIS member. That show has popularized that profession as much as Criminal Minds has popularized the behavioral analyst. I would not have known what she did for a living except if my mother outed her right there. She was like, well, she's a special agent with uh, um, the NCIS. And when she, we talked for a few minutes and um, she offered to, I gave her my card and We've exchanged um, information now, and sometimes when I need, I have to, you know, send her an email and ask her a question. But as she walked away, my mother said, you would never know that she carries a great big high-powered rifle and runs around uh, chasing terrorists all over the world. And I said, that's right, Mom, you would never know that because that's part of her job is for you not to know. Huh. And so I remembered that when I was writing about Rainey. And it's her job for you not to know who she is when she's in a room evaluating people. She doesn't want them to know. She doesn't walk in the room and say, hi, I'm a former FBI agent, and um, I know everything there is to know about behavioral analysts. So let me just jump in here and tell you all how to do your job. She's very quiet. She watches. And when the time comes, then she steps up and does what she does. But um, knowing these things about them, those little things, just remembering meeting that woman on the beach and how she carried herself. She was very aware of everything that was happening around us, but she was listening to my conversation, but I could also tell that she was watching everything else that was happening. So uh, I, I took that to heart and, and include that in Rainey's character. What made you want to write this book, the series? The series... I, like I said, when I left high school, I wanted to be a behavioral analyst. 
things had just started being written about behavioral analysts and the, it was the behavioral science unit back then. It's now the behavioral analysis unit, but back then it was the BS, uh, BSU. Uh, and I had read some of the first articles about them. I'd been fascinated by true crime my whole life. I used to steal my mother's true crime novels. She had a trunk in her room where she hid the books from us that she didn't want us to read. She had some uh, uh, of those detective magazines and true crime and rule, all these books uh, going way back. I mean, she was a true crime fan herself. And so I was, I was reading all those books, and instead of being horrified by it, I was fascinated by that mind that could create those things, those fantasies that these men had, uh, and women. And I was just fascinated by it, and I had always been fascinated by it. So when I started writing, it just kind of came naturally. I, I, you know, a lot of authors will say this. I had a dream. I had a dream one night, and I woke up, and I dreamed the first chapter of the first Rainy Bell thriller. And I sat, I got up that morning and I wrote it down. And I could still remember the dream was so vivid. I knew exactly who Rainy Bell was, what she looked like, who everybody in that is a major player in her life, I knew exactly who they were uh, when I woke up. And I could still smell the aftershave in the leather. Leather. She's When, when you first meet Rainy, she's asleep. She's passed out, um, hungover. And she's fallen asleep on the couch in her father's office. And she can still smell his aftershave in the leather because he had fallen asleep on that couch so many times. And he's dead now. And that's a memory that she has. And I could smell that when I woke up. And until I sat down and wrote that first chapter out, I couldn't get rid of that smell. So I kind of equate writing to it's something that gets under your skin. And until you can get, get it out, it just... It's vivid. It lives with you. Um, and Rainy was living with me, so I decided to put Rainy on paper, and I have enjoyed Rainy's character so much. I did not realize she was going to be a series, but I'm glad she is. I, I, How many I, books I, in, the, in the series? I am working on book six right now. Oh, that's a decent so, series. Yeah. We've gone a long way. We went from Rainy being alone, miserable, recovering from being uh, attacked, uh, losing her father, who was the most stable person in her life, retiring from the FBI, and now she's married, got triplets, running her own business, and pretty much has a happy life if the killers and uh, the bad guys would stop in interjecting themselves into her happiness, I guess. Let's um, mosey back to characterization. Do you think it's important that authors know every single one of their characters really deeply, even the tiny little roles? Okay. That goes back to that there are no small parts, only small actors. Every character, even like uh, there's a, in the book Molly House on Fire, there's a guy who serves them some barbecue at a diner. He is not important to the story, but I know who he is, and I know exactly. I could see him vividly in my mind. So that's my iceberg. I know who Red is. I know his name is Red because that's it, the name of the store is Red's Barbecue. Uh, he has a little bit of red in his hair and a little bit of gray. I know that he works there. And all the reader finds out is that Red likes cars and he is um, talking to them about the car in the parking lot. And he cooks barbecue and he has a dirty apron. That's all that I'm giving you. But I know all about Red. I know him. And if I could have done that scene without Red and furthered the story without having Red come in there, I would have done that. 
So yes, it's important for me to know who Red is as the author. It may not be as important to you as the reader to know who he is, but I, as an author, I need to know why he's there. Uh, he was there to start the conversation again because the two women had gotten in an argument in the car. So when they get into the diner, they're not speaking to each other, and Red is the one that gives them an opportunity to start to speak to each other again and to resolve whatever issues it is. So Red served a purpose. So if he's going to be in the book and he is serving a purpose, then I do need to know who he is. I'm not, I don't need to know what his wife's name is or his birthday or any of those other things, but I do need to know uh, fundamentally who Red is. And Red is a big pot-bellied guy with red cheeks who's eaten too much pork barbecue. He's got high blood pressure and he's been working in that diner forever. I need to know that so that I can portray that to you without having to give you all that detail. So I picked out a few points uh, about Red that would tell the reader exactly who this guy is and what he's doing there. But it is important. So you wouldn't put a character in the book unless he plays some sort of role, right? Right. Now I'm not talking about like if you're describing a scene and say I'm describing a scene down at the beach about a bunch of tourists. I'm not going to know everything there is to know about the 200 tourists there, but I can make some assumptions and give you, it depends on who's talking. If it's somebody from, I'm from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. And if you've lived on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, you know who a Turai is. We call them Turai. The Turai, you will notice them, they have white socks on and flip-flops. They have pants that don't match their shirts. They've got usually a bright red sunburn because they didn't bring enough sunblock. So there are some things I might tell you about this crowd of people. I don't know what they had for breakfast, but I do know who they are. And I need you to know that. So I can give you a few hints about that. But somebody who's going to interact with the main characters in a book, those people, because of that interaction, then I, I need to know who they are. And a lot of times, uh, those interactions turn into books about other people. Molly Kincaid is a lawyer. She is in every book that I've written. And the interesting thing is, she was a secondary character that just showed up. I needed a lawyer in the first book I ever wrote, and so I invented Molly. She was a lawyer. Um, I didn't know everything there was to know about Molly other than where she went to school, that she was really good at her job, and she made a lot of money. And that's all you really needed to know in the first book. And people fell in love with Molly, and they wanted to know who she was because she showed up in another book. And then she showed up in another book. And there were little pieces of Molly here and there. And then uh, I realized I needed to write Molly's story. And then I had to go into a full, fleshed-out, I know everything. I know what Molly had for breakfast. I need to explain what I mean by I know what Molly had for breakfast. In one of our acting exercises, we had to take a character. If we, if we knew this character, uh, we were going to play this character. We had to know what the character had done before they came on stage. So from the moment their feet hit the floor in the morning, if their feet hit the floor in the morning, did they sleep that night? Did they walk the floor all night? Did they have breakfast? If they did, what did they eat? Their, their social standing will tell you a lot about who they are and, and what they ate for breakfast, how they dress, what kind of clothes they wear. And the hints that you get with inside the script push you in a direction that the author gives you these clues, but he doesn't always give you everything you need to know. You don't know what they had for breakfast. So you have to sit down and figure out everything there is to know about this person. Somebody who's homeless isn't really concerned about what they have for breakfast. Somebody who has a... Uh, 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 
a, a person who's paid to bring them breakfast in bed, that's a different person. So knowing how they got the breakfast, what they had for breakfast, tells you a lot about the character. So I know what the people who make a difference in the book had for breakfast. If they're a casual character that they just ran into and it's just showing you something about the people in the area, that's still, I might not know what that person had for breakfast, but I do know that they are a stereotype that I'm using to portray what it's what a person from the Outer Banks is like. So there, there's the minor, minor characters. No, I don't know what they have for breakfast, but I do know who they are. And I don't put them in a book unless they need to be there. If, if I can get through a scene without adding somebody else into the book, I'm, I'm happy to do that because it's just more complication. When you keep adding little characters that don't really mean anything and don't further the story, you're just complicating things. Mm, and it can get confusing for the reader. Yes, it can get very confusing for the reader because, especially with thrillers, I know my thriller readers. I know them. I know them very well. If I just casually mention somebody in the beginning of a book, they're going to make note of that person because they know I don't put anybody in a book uh, that doesn't have a reason for being there, even if the reason is they're a red herring and you're supposed to give them a good hard look, and you might think that this person is the killer. I've written books where the killer was somebody who I barely even talked about them. Uh, and then then they, the reader at the end, they go back and go, oh, okay, that's what that person was doing in the book. Yeah, so you have to be really careful with the thrillers and the mysteries about what clues you throw out there because those people will get really angry if you throw a bunch of people in there that don't do anything. It's just to trick them. They don't like to be tricked. They want to be. They want to work. They want to work hard. It's a good point. They do. They want to work for it, but they don't want to be misled. Writing a book is is a very singular activity. You do write by yourself, but I have a lot of people, and I know authors do too, that they bounce stuff off of. Uh, other authors do that as well. I have friends that I'll call and I'll talk about a book and they're so funny because they'll say, yeah, yeah, and you'll change it tomorrow. But at least they let me talk about those characters. And we talk about the Earl Stanley Gardner way of writing a mystery. Uh, a lot of times in a Perry Mason mystery, uh, right at the very end, some guy just shows up and he's the guilty party and they didn't talk about him at all during the whole book. Although I love uh, Perry Mason books, I hate that about, about them because it doesn't let you work. You know, you got to analyze every character that walks in a room. Everybody that interacts with Rainy Bell at some point in that book can be the killer. You just don't know. So, and you have to be careful about how you do that. Absolutely. Okay, so if an author does just one thing today in terms of characterization, what should she do? I was looking at it more uh, along the lines of, of what an author should do. I wasn't specifically thinking about characterization, but it would work as well. I think the most important thing to do is get out of your house. Get out of your house. Get out of the chair. Go sit in a mall. Go to a movie. Go walk around a bookstore. Just go to McDonald's. Well, I don't recommend going to McDonald's. But just go to, go, uh, go to the grocery store. But don't just be in your head. Watch other people and listen for the interactions. Watch body language. I love to watch people. I spend an awful lot of time at our Oklahoma City Botanical Garden and Zoo, and you can get a lot of information about people walking around, listening to them talk, and I, I find that fascinating. So my, my one recommendation is get out and get around people that aren't necessarily the people you hang out with. You need to write about all kinds of people, so you need to meet all kinds of people. Getting out and making observations, and I write little stories. Uh, I thank God my wife will play along We'll see some people and we'll start talking about 
what's going on with them. And we have our own little dialogue about she said this and he said that, and that's why the kid's upset. You know, and we see, you know, just make this whole story up about these people that are walking around in the zoo. So I, I enjoy uh, people watching, and I think that authors sometimes tend to lock themselves up in their space and not get out in the world. And that's what you're writing about is the world. Unless you're, you know, Emily Dickinson and you're just writing about what you see inside your house and those four walls. I think Emily Dickinson might have been a very different writer if she'd gotten out more. Hmm. I think that's a whole nother conversation, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can either stay in your head, and if that's what you're writing about, then that's, that's great. But if you're writing about people in general, you need to get out and see things and be around people. Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Otherwise, your characters are going to get tired. Right. And get uncomfortable. Put yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable because you're not always comfortable. Your, your characters aren't always comfortable either. Actually, I think that's a really good idea. So what do you do to make yourself uncomfortable? Oh, I hate crowds. I absolutely hate crowds. So if, if I want to be very uncomfortable, just take me to the mall. Mm. I particularly don't like being around a lot of people when they're angry and, and stressed out. Like going to the airport, I, I don't enjoy it because so many people are stressed out. I can feel all that energy around me. Um, I try to sit with people who are laughing and having a good time and then sit back and watch uh, the interactions of people who are upset with the gatekeepers, people who get searched at TSA, uh, all that stuff. And um, I, I, those things make me very uncomfortable. So uh, I, I tend to just get inside my head and watch. People watch. I actually take notes about things that might, I might include in a book. That's a really great idea. Thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Before you go, though, I want us to end off with what book somebody should read of yours first and then where they can find your work, where they can find you online, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, it depends on what kind of reader you are. If you like thrillers, then absolutely the Rainy Bell Thriller series and start with book one. I always tell people I was learning how to write when I wrote that book, but I think I did okay for a first mystery. The series gets much better and much more. I got much more comfortable with being an author as the series went on, so uh, I really enjoy those books. If you like romances, Waking Up Gray is one of my favorites. There are several uh, romances that I wrote, and that bothers people uh, a little bit. They'll read the romances and then jump into the Rainy Bell thriller series, and it's a completely different world. So if you're not, if you don't like Criminal Minds, if you can't sit through The Silence of the Lambs, then don't read the Rainy Bell series. But if you are you know, lean to the romantic side, I've got some of those books for you. Molly House on Fire has some mystery in it, but it's also a romance story. Waking Up Gray is my favorite of the romances that I wrote. It's about Okakoka Island and two women who meet each other a little later on in life. So that's those are the ones I'd recommend, I guess. Uh, oh, my favorite. Wow. My absolute favorite book that I've ever written is called Out on the Panadol. Um, and it's about Decky Bradshaw and her girlfriend, Charlie Warren. And they go from North Carolina out to see Charlie's folks out in the panhandle of Oklahoma. And it has some historic fiction in it. It has two stories. It's one story is about a couple back in the early 1800s or late 1800s. And then the rest of the story is modern day. So it's two stories in one. It's one of my favorites. I absolutely love it. So you get a little bit of mystery. And a lot of, I guess I would call it 
uh, a comedy drama series. It's a interesting story. And where do you find me? You find me on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I'm a two trick pony. That's all I do. I don't do any of the other distributors. It just makes my life a lot less complicated by doing that. So, so you can get the Kindle books and Nook books, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon.com. If you just type in R.E. Bradshaw, it takes you right to my page. I also have a web page, rebradshawbooks.com. I'm on Facebook a lot. That's <laughs> I don't remember that. I'm definitely on Facebook. So it's also R.E. Bradshaw on uh, Facebook. And aren't you on Twitter? Oh yeah. I do Twitter some. I'm a horrible social media person. I, I hang out on Facebook because it's easy. And then I remember I have a Twitter account and I go over and post something on Twitter and I promise myself I'm going to do Twitter every day. Um, and then I don't. Uh, so I'm, I'm basically just me. Uh, and if you hang out with me on uh, Facebook, there isn't a lot to... It's, uh, I've had a friend say that people have asked her, who is she and what is she really like? And she tells them... What she says and who she is on Facebook is exactly who she is. That's that's it. There's no, you know, she's not putting on any airs. So that's who I am. I just, I write for a living. I sit at home. I'm self-published. I wouldn't change a thing at this point. Unless somebody wants to give me a million dollar contract, then I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> Do you make enough to live off of from your writing? Yes. So what's the one tip you would just quickly give to authors who want to do that? Self-publishing. Um, my biggest tip is that you cannot edit yourself, so don't imagine that you can. Your mother, who has an English degree, can't edit you either, uh, nor can your best friend who made straight A's in college. It needs to be a professional fiction, if you're writing fiction, fiction editor. There's a big difference between a copy editor for a technical magazine or a newspaper and someone who edits fiction for a living. So find one. It's worth the money. If you don't have the money, then be sure to tell everybody in your book blurb, I did not edit this. This is a, and, and give it away for free because people don't like to pay for things that they don't like. But you only get one good opportunity at a first impression. Um, so make sure you, it's worth it. If you have to, you know, don't drink Starbucks coffee every day. Save that $3, $4. Uh, until you have enough to pay an editor to go through your work. It's, it's absolutely imperative. And treat self-publishing as a publishing business. It's not a girls' club. It's a business, and run it that way. I do everything that a professional, traditional publisher does. I just do it for myself, and that's the way it needs to be looked at. If you're just writing stuff down on a piece of paper, typing it up, throwing it up on the Internet for free, a lot of a lot of famous people found, were found that way, and God love you if you can do that. But the majority of the people can't, so please get an editor and make your stuff look as professional as possible. Absolutely, I think that's just the best advice you can give. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And for the listeners out there who are listening, we reviewed Waking Up Grey and my reviewer who reviewed it, Lainey, absolutely loved the book and highly, highly recommends it. So go out and get yourself a copy. Awesome. Thank you for listening to The Right Stuff. I'm Sheena and we've been chatting to Ori Bradshaw. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and rate it.